Well, good morning, church. We are continuing our study in the, uh, in the Gospel of John. I hope that you all received a copy of the, the Gospel of John journals we were distributing in the last two weeks. We're, we're hoping, and our prayer is that everyone in this congregation who considers this church their home will continue to use those journals, will continue to take some notes, not just on Sunday mornings, although that's fun for us to do together, but even during the week in your continued study, there's ongoing reading lists that are coming out on the website and the internet and whatever. Um, but I'm hoping that you all got copies. I, I found out last week, I was standing at the doors, that we had given away all the copies that we purchased, so we're reordering more of those. I think we ordered like 2,500 or 3,000 at the outset, so I'm stoked to say there are 3,000 people who got copies of those, um, but we also had folks last week who wanted them and we didn't have enough, so there's more coming in the mail, um, and, and we want to make sure that you all get one of those if you haven't already, so that you can bring them on Sundays and use them during the week. As we continue this sort of ongoing study, it'll help us keep our thoughts straight as we progress through this look at what the love of God does in the lives of men. Our series is entitled, or sort of sub titled uh, Love and Trouble. We saw in the first week that the love of God is disruptive, that the love of God is disruptive to God himself, that the Trinity existed in perfect harmony, and because of their love for themselves, right, for God's love for himself, he acts and he moves, and the Lord Jesus enters into creation. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, we will see this morning in John 1.14. That the love of God is a catalyst for action, and sometimes that's troubling for us as his creation. We saw in our first two weeks that the word, the pre-existing word, was God and was with God. We also saw last week that Jesus, the word of God, the most articulate, clearest thing God has ever said in the person of Jesus Christ, that in him was life, and that life was the light of men, and it shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the way it's translated in the ESV, overcome, but the word there, catalambana, could very easily be translated apprehended, that the, the darkness has not apprehended it, has not caught up to it and overcome it, is what, is what the writer's saying there, that the light shines and there is nothing that can diminish it, and there is no one who will ever fully comprehend it. And now the author, John, continues his line of thought. Now this morning I'll tell you in advance, I don't have a, a nice, tidy little, you know, three alliterated points for you to write in your journals. Uh, this text doesn't really do that. This is a deeply theological text. There is so much depth and richness in the text that what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to try and follow the author's line of thinking, right? We're going to try and follow his line of thought, and I think we can sort of untangle it together that way. He moves from saying that in Jesus was life, and that that life was the light of men, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overtaken it or understood it, right? Overcome it. And then he says this, he kind of steps out of his deeply theological statements and he starts a little bit of a narrative. He says this in verse six. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now this is interesting. All three of the other gospel writers begin the ministry of Jesus by talking about John the Baptist, right? You see that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark, in fact, begins his gospel with John the Baptist. John, the author here, is the only one of the gospel writers who won't write John the Baptist. He just uses the word John. He says, there was a man sinned from God whose name was John. And that's interesting because while it does tie his narrative to the other gospel narratives, it's also distinctly different. And I think it's significant 
because the writer's name is John as well. I don't know if you know other people who have the same name as you, but there is sort of a funny, there's not, I don't know very many people named Darren. I've met a few, right? And there's not really very many famous people named Darren. There's the guy that was on Bewitched, right, in the 70s and 80s. There's like a, and that's not even that dude's real name. So like, he's not a hero of mine, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't go, yeah, I hope, you know, when I really become something, I'll be like the guy from Bewitched. He was kind of a knucklehead. He didn't know his wife was a witch, for goodness sakes, right? Here's the thing. John is writing about John the Baptist, but he uses just the word John. And here's what he, he's going to make some very beautiful statements about John the Baptist. But I think that as he's writing, he's recognizing there's something really cool about this name. The name John, by the way, means God is gracious. God is gracious. And it's true not only of John the Baptist, this witness, this ambassador, but it's true of John the author, John the apostle as well. And so here's what he says in verse six. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, this idea of witness, uh, that will be a major theme through the entire gospel of the book of John, this idea of being a witness to what we have seen and what we have heard. John the Baptist was a witness to the light. And it's very important to John the author that he's making a distinction here between the light of men, which is Jesus Christ, the life that's in Christ, and John the Baptist, who was not the light, he was simply a witness to the light. What he's doing is he's saying, there's a difference between the Lord Jesus and a human ambassador. Any other human witness is distinctly different than the Lord Jesus. Jesus isn't just a human witness of God or to God. Jesus was the light, and every other prophet, and by the way, John the Baptist, we would think of as sort of the last in the long line of Old Testament prophets, right? Throughout Old Testament history, God had spoken through different ambassadors. He'd spoken through different prophets. John the Baptist fits that model. He fits the model of an Old Testament prophet, even though we find his story in the New Testament. But John the Baptist is the last, and Jesus will even say the greatest. Why? Because John the Baptist had the opportunity to prophesy, to speak prophetically, to call people to repentance towards a Messiah that they could actually see in front of their faces, So while Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of the other prophets had looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, none of them had lived during his time. None of them had the opportunity to baptize the Messiah, which John the Baptist did. So the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets is found in John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last in a long history of Old Testament prophets, right? And it says here that he wasn't the light, he was simply a witness to the light. But notice also that it says he was sent from God. The idea of sentness is a major theme throughout the scripture, right? Throughout the book of John, the author will again and again return to the idea that God sends, that he sends the Lord Jesus, and here that he sends John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God. God sent John the Baptist to the world to prepare the way, to make straight the path so that the Messiah could come. And John the Baptist came, He declared these things. He was a witness, to bear witness about the light. And what was his motivation? What was his goal? The goal of this man, John, which means God is gracious, was to bear witness about the light, what? That all might believe through him. How cool would it be to have that on your tombstone, right? We were thinking about it this week in our teaching meeting, and I was thinking, it doesn't really matter what you do with your life. It doesn't matter what people think of you. There is no better way to be remembered than this. I pray that at the end of my life, People would say, oh, yeah, we knew that guy. He wasn't the light, but he was a witness to the light. And he lived a life as a witness to the light that all 
would come to know the light. That's a pretty big and lofty goal. I think sometimes we set little goals, don't we? We go, oh, you know, I'd like to lose 15 or 20 pounds. That might not seem like a little goal to you. I'd like to lose 15 pounds. Hey, you know, it'd be really, I'd like to get a raise in the next three years. You know, it'd be nice, it'd be cool if we could save up enough money to pay off our house. We set these little goals. Imagine having the purpose of your life to be that all men and women would come to see the light of Christ. That's what John the Baptist lived for. That's what he was remembered for. And I think that as the author John is writing his prologue here. He stops, he connects to the other gospel writers by mentioning the ministry of John the Baptist, which he'll come back to again. But I think he's not just talking about John the Baptist. I think he's talking about John himself. I think he can look at himself and say, I also am a man sent from God. I'm not the light. There's a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to the light. He was not the light, but he lived in such a way that all men might believe through him. Is that the way your life is organized this morning, church? Is that your primary goal and your primary endeavor in everything and all that you do? Or are you seeking to lift up the light? I love the fact that in John chapter 5, Jesus describes John the Baptist this way. And we'll come to it in a few weeks. Well, actually, it'll be a few months. In John chapter 5, verse 35, Jesus says this about John the Baptist. He was a burning and shining lamp And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have, Jesus says, is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I like the fact that Jesus refers to John the Baptist not as the light, but as a lamp. What's a lamp? A lamp is a vehicle for the light. It's a vessel for the light. Jesus looked at John the Baptist. Imagine having the Lord Jesus describe you as a lamp for his light. I think John, the author here, sits down to tell the story of Jesus, to focus our attention upon the true God, the true light that's come into the world, and he starts here by saying, Jesus is God's word made incarnate, Jesus is is the articulation of God, and he's the light and life of men. There was a man sent by God, right, and he was a witness to God. But there's a difference between the witness and the source, right? There's a difference between a lamp and the light inside the lamp. It was a man sent from God, and I think John here is describing not only John the Baptist, but he's describing himself. And for me, when I read the text, I want that to be the way I describe myself as well. I want that to be the way I organize my day. I want it to be the way I think about my life and breath, about my gifts and my talents, about my abilities, that I am just a man and you are just a woman. We are people just sent by God to be a witness to the true light. And so you can follow John's thinking here. He's just said John isn't the light, but he's a witness to the light. And so thinking about light, then we've come to verse 9. He says this, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So he's talking about John not being the light, but being a witness to the light. And then he makes a switch here and he says in 9, the true light. And that word true is important. That word true isn't a distinction between uh, what we might think of as true and false. When he's, he's not saying that Jesus wasn't a false light. The word there that's translated true has more to do with the idea of something being uh, the original or the counterfeit, right? It's a subtle distinction, but what, what John is saying here is that Jesus isn't just the light. He is the true light. It's very similar to when Jesus in John 15 will look at his disciples and say, I am the true vine. And apart from me, you can do nothing, right? It's the difference between the true and the counterfeit. It's amazing in our lives how often we can be led astray by counterfeit lights. 
I was just having a conversation 10 minutes ago about a fishing trip my friend Dave took in which he's talking to somebody who claims to be a Christian and he's yet living a life of indulgence under the umbrella of Christianity, saying, no, Jesus just wants me to live in a way that makes me feel good. Well, that's a counterfeit light, right? It says the true light. Jesus is the true light, the original light, the authentic light. The true light which gives light to everyone. I like that too. If you have your journal this morning, underline the word true and underline the word everyone. The true light which gives light to everyone. We recognize that this light is a universal light. Not only did John the Baptist have a universal goal that all men would believe through him, but that's actually the point of the light, that that light would shine on everyone. And you might say, well, does it really shine on everyone? And yeah, we see in the scripture that it does. In fact, in Romans chapter one, it makes it very clear that in a sense of general revelation, the light of the creator has shined on all men so that they are without excuse. Romans chapter one, verses 18 and following says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What's that text saying in Romans chapter 1? It's saying the light of God, the light that is in Christ, the life of men, has shined in a way that all men can see it. We see it in the snow on the top of the mountains here behind us, right? We see it in the light that shines on our faces, the cloudless sky, in all that the the creator has made. His glory is declared so that all men are without excuse. That true light, that authentic light, as opposed to a counterfeit light, was coming into the world to shine on everyone. The light that shines on all men. All of us have the opportunity to know this Jesus. This church thing we're doing is not an exclusive club. It's not for insiders. It's not for people who've studied the right stuff or gone to the right meetings or paid enough money or done enough good deeds. The light of Christ is light for all men, right? This true light was coming into the world, this light for all. John chapter one, verse nine, follow his thinking. He says, John isn't the light, he's just a witness to the light, but the true light was coming to the world. And then he tells us something tragic. Look at the tragedy here in verse 10. It says, this true light, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. Follow his line of thinking here? He says, wow, how amazing is this true light. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and that light, the light of Jesus who created the world, the creator, comes into his creation, and the creation doesn't recognize him. What's worse, he comes to his own people, the people of Israel. He comes, the Messiah, the one that the Israelites had been waiting for for 400 years and more. He comes to his own people and they don't receive him. What a great tragedy this is. And it's funny, when you first think about it, you think, how could they not recognize him, right? Because you and I, we sort of think, well, if Jesus walked in here this morning, we would know he was here and we would welcome him and we would bow down before him and we would sing his praise. But when we say that, here's what we're thinking. We're thinking if the guy with the beard and the blue sash, right, and the, the, the scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side, if he walked through the doors, we would all bow down and worship. You're picturing a certain caricature of what Jesus may have looked like, and you're thinking, how could they not recognize him? We've all known what Jesus looks like from the time we were little. Listen, they didn't have any cartoons of Jesus. They didn't have any pictures or paintings of Jesus. 
They didn't have anything to compare it to. So when it says he came to his creation and they did not know him, when it says he came to his people and they did not receive him, it doesn't mean that they didn't recognize him by his external appearance. The reason they didn't recognize him is that he did not look like them. Follow me. The people of God had not been living in alignment with the declared character of God. They had not been obedient to who he had declared himself to be. And so their community, the community of Israel had become legalistic, had become pharisaical. What they were looking for was a military leader. What they were looking for was somebody to chase out the Romans and yet this light is for all people. It isn't just a legalistic law that was declared to to, to Moses on a mountain, which John will get to in a second. The declaration and the Jesus that walks into their presence is a Jesus full of grace and truth, and they don't know him because grace and truth are not what they're founded upon. Grace and truth feels foreign. They look at Jesus and they go, why are you eating with sinners? Why do you have prostitutes in your home? Why are you friends with tax collectors? Why do you do these things on the Sabbath? You don't look like the Messiah. We don't recognize you at all. Why? Not because of how he looked, but because of how they looked. My question for us this morning, and the thing we gotta take on the chin, is if Jesus walked in here, I'm not talking about the beard and the blue sash, but if he walked into our congregation full of grace and truth, would we know him, or would he feel like an outsider? If he came in here and he was worshiping the Father with abandon, would we go, hey, 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 tone it down, bro. That's not how we do it up in here. We, we like to scrutinize the lyrics. We like to sit and think about whether or not we like the way these songs are played or organized. Hey, 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 slow it down a little bit. Don't want to get too excited. Would he seem foreign to us in this place? Came in here full of grace and truth and worship and love, generosity and kindness. Would we go, well, yeah, you know, that's all great, but how did you vote in the last election, Jesus? Because you don't look like a Christian to me. That's not how Christians vote, right? No, we want to align with his image Not force him to align with ours. They did not recognize him. It's a terrible tragedy that the creator comes into the world and they do not know him. He comes into the world and his creation doesn't recognize him. I think about uh, that undercover boss show, right? Where the boss dresses up in in a costume and he goes in and nobody even knows that's their boss. Jesus didn't dress up. He was his true self and they didn't recognize him because they'd gotten so off track with who God had created them to be. He comes to his own and they don't know him. Back to John chapter one, it says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming to the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to his own people, and they did not receive him. But check this out in verse 12. He says, all hope is not lost though, my friends. This is one of the famous passages in John. In verse 12 it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, right? There are some who don't believe. There are some who don't recognize him. There are some who don't receive him. But that isn't true of everyone. Yes, the vast majority did, majority did not recognize him. But to those who did, to those who did receive, to those who did believe, John says, he gave the right to become children of God. <gasps> if you have your pencil and your journal in your hand, underline the word gave and underline the word right and underline the word become. These are cool things. And, and this is one of those passages that makes both Arminians and Calvinists a little bit frustrated, right? 
It makes them both frustrated because there are some people on one side of the thing that want to say, well, God ordains it all. He controls it all. That's sort of the Calvinist position that everything is determined in advance by God. And if you're a Calvinist, God bless you. And there are the Arminians on the other side who go, no, God doesn't determine any of that. He sets the world going and he allows us to make our choices and we sort of have the ability to choose him. And if you're an Arminian here this morning, God bless you. And if you're anywhere on that spectrum in between, God bless you too, right? The reality is that the Bible teaches both. Here it says that those who believe and those who receive were given the right by God to become, right? So what do we see there? We see the two holding hands. Does it have to do with belief? Does it have to do with receiving the Lord Jesus when the rest of the world rejected him? Absolutely it does. There is absolutely a teaching in the scripture that says it is for us to look at Christ and trust in him, to receive him or to accept him as our savior and king. Right? There's a part of it that we, that we have to respond to in faith. But it's also important to recognize that our faith is only possible because God gives us, first, the right to become sons of God. It's both. Right? To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave, he gave. Right? God gives the right to be adopted. And that sons isn't, isn't just for men, right? That's sons and daughters. That's children of God. He invites us to be his children. And that is still true here this morning. That whether you've recognized Jesus before or whether you haven't, whether you've ever been inside the doorstep of a church before, maybe you've never opened a Bible before, the reality is that Jesus is as available to you today as he was when this was written and as he was 2,000 years ago when he came in the incarnation. That the Lord Jesus gives the right today to become the children of God to those who will receive him, to those who will believe. Yes, there are some who don't know him. There are some who don't see him, who can look him straight in the eye, who can hear him say, I and the Father are one. Jesus wasn't a secret agent, right? He wasn't sneaking around. He was very clear about who he was and what he came to do. And there are people who knew exactly what he was saying and rejected it. The same is true in our day and age today. There are still people who don't see him, people who don't receive him, who are not interested in believing in him. But to those who do believe, my friends, this morning, God still gives the right to become sons and daughters of God. And listen, look at, look at what else he says. Just, to, just in case there's any misunderstanding. He says in verse 13, who were born, uh, you might underline that word born also. That's gonna come back in John three, right? When Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to be a follower of you? What do I have to do to be a Christian? Jesus says, you gotta be born again. We'll get there in a couple of weeks, right? But here it is. He gives us the right, he gives us the right to become sons and daughters of God. But look at what he says. Those were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. There's a couple distinctions he's making. He says this, this uh, in theological terms, if you're interested in the theology of it, what we're talking about here, what's being described is called regeneration, right? That we are born again, that we are born new. Uh, the, the work of God on our behalf is not the work of modification. He doesn't take our lives from good to great. He doesn't make us better than we were. He doesn't improve our life. God doesn't take us from, you know, sad to glad. No, he makes us new. Right? We are completely regenerated. We are born again. But that being born again, right? That being born again is not because of the blood. It's not genetics. It's not the family you were born into, right? It has nothing to do with your lineage, which was a common misconception in, in the time in which this was written. That you were born into the family of God because who your grandfather was and your great-grandfather and your great-great-grandfather. John here says, no, no, no. This being born children of God is not of blood, nor is it the will of the flesh. What's he talking about there? He's saying it's not, it's not a, a result of our natural inclinations, 
right? The will of the flesh has to do with what comes natural to us. The Bible is clear that when we do what makes sense to us, the end result is death, not life. Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there's a way that seems right to men, but the end thereof is death. This being born of God, this new life, this adoption into the family of God is not a result of whose family you were born into. It's not a result of your natural inclinations. And it's not a result of the will of man. The, the word there is the, um, the idea of a husband's will. It was perceived in the time that the idea of procreation was an act of the husband's will in a marriage, right? That the husband was the one who decided when a baby was gonna be born. And so what the writer here is saying is, look, it's not about your genetics, it's not about your lineage, it's also not about your natural inclinations, and it's not about some man somewhere deciding you're gonna be born. No, it's about what? The will of God, right? The will of God. Jesus, the creator, came to his creation and tragically they didn't know him because he didn't look like them. He came to his own and they did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not of an act of the blood, not of an act of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of the will of God. God does that saving work. He rescues us from sin and death. He rescues us from separation. He rescues us from brokenness and sin. Our inability to see the light And now as John is thinking about this, as he's thinking about the will of God, and he's also thinking about becoming. I had you underline a second ago that God gives us the right to become children of God. The Greek word there is ginomai. Ginomai, that he gives us the right to become. You underlined it, become. That word is ginomai. He's gonna use that word again. Now John is thinking about us becoming new, becoming children of God, and he transitions into one of the most important verses in the entirety of the Bible, John 1.14, where he says, we only have the ability to become children of God because the word, John 1.14, became, ginomai, became flesh. His becoming was for our becoming. Does that make sense? He became that we might become. Look at John 1.14 with me. And the word, the eternal, pre-existing, clearest articulation of God, the word that was in the beginning and that was the beginning, right? That was in the beginning with God and that was God. That word, John 1.14, the Lord Jesus, became flesh, ginomai. Became flesh and dwelt among us dwelt among us, the word there. And you know, even from our, our study in John 1, 1 through 4, that, uh, that, that John the Baptist is wanting always to tie, excuse me, not John the Baptist, John the author is wanting to tie with the Old Testament. He ties with the Old Testament by beginning within the beginning, right? He ties with the Old Testament by talking about John the Baptist, the last in a long line of Old Testament prophets. And here he says, the word, the incarnate word became flesh. The theological word for that is Incarnation. Not that you care, but it's an important one to write down. It's something you should care about, right? The incarnation, the word, became flesh. Philippians says that he did not consider consider equality with God something to be clung to, but instead he made himself nothing. What did he make himself? Human. In that passage, humanity is equated with nothingness. He became nothing. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? The word, genomai, became flesh, and dwelt, that word dwelt could be translated camped. Or better yet, it could be translated tabernacled, right? Tabernacle. Now for many of you, you might go, well I'm glad it's not translated that way because I got no idea what that would mean. I get dwelt, right? What's John trying to tell us? He's trying to paint a picture that the Lord Jesus came and he set up camp with us. 
And he's trying to show us and, and tie a, a connection here to the Old Testament. That for the people of Israel who were traveling in the wilderness, that God came and tabernacled among them. We see it in Exodus chapter 34 and following. In Exodus 34 and following, God describes himself as gracious and true. Listen to this. Exodus 34 verses 5 and following, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. What does God say about himself? He says, I am a God who is merciful and gracious, but I am also a God who is holy and just and I will uphold the truth. What does God declare about himself in Exodus 34? Make sure you remember, he declares, I am a God of grace and truth, and I will dwell among you, and you will see my glory. Although in Exodus, it it was a little bit of a separated glory, right? So he gives the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 34 a second time, and at the end of Exodus 34, when Moses comes down off the mountain, remember, the people see his face and it's glowing, it's glowing, he has to cover his face with a veil because they're kind of freaked out because he'd been, not, he hadn't even seen God, he'd just been close to the glory of God and his face took on a heavenly glow, right? Now in John chapter one, John the author is saying, you think it's amazing? You think it's amazing that God came and tabernacled among the people of Israel and that they were able, able to both see his grace and truth, and in some ways they were able to experience his glory. He says, you think that was awesome? You think our history was awesome when God traveled? If you read Exodus chapter 40, they pick up that tabernacle and they move it around with them as they travel. And when they build the tabernacle and they set it up, the cloud of God's presence descends upon the tabernacle and rests there. And in some cases, the glory of God is so present that Moses can't enter, right? You think that's amazing? He says in John chapter one, you think it's amazing that the presence of God moved around with the people and they were able to experience part of his glory? Let me tell you what. The word, John 1.14, tabernacled among us. It became flesh. Genemai, became. Just like we become sons of God. It became flesh and tabernacled among us. And look at what he says next. You think them seeing the glory of God is cool. Check it out. This is John chapter one, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son. Notice the uniqueness there. Jesus isn't one of many. He is the only begotten Son, right? Glory is of the only Son from the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. Moses got, got to experience the glory of God from a distance, John says. But we, and here we talked two weeks ago about the fact that all through this book we're going to see eyewitness details, right? That John is going to go, let me tell you what I saw. I saw this and I saw that. He goes, let me tell you what. Moses, he had his little tent and God came and resided there and he got sort of an echo of the glory of God. No, no, no. The word of God incarnate has come among us. He became flesh and tabernacled here with us and we have seen his glory. We've seen it, full of exactly what God described himself as in Exodus 34, grace and truth. The Old Testament God, my friends, is not different than the New Testament God. There are a lot of people who will go, ah, it seems like two totally different people. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Full of grace and truth. He says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's thinking about the tabernacle here and watch the flow of thinking as we move on in John 1. 
He gives a little aside in verse 15 to talk about the origin of Jesus. So he says, John, that's John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That's only interesting up to a point. It's interesting in the fact that Jesus was most likely born six to nine months after John the Baptist, right? So it's interesting that John the Baptist's declaration is, he's before me because he was before me. It's John the Baptist acknowledging that Jesus didn't begin at Christmas, right? He didn't begin in the manger that he is always. God was with God, or the word was with God and the word was God in the beginning. Look at what he says next. talking about the glory of God full of grace and truth, verse 16. For from his fullness, his fullness. What's that mean, his fullness? Well, he is full of the glory of God. He is full of grace and truth. The writer to Colossians, Paul says this in Colossians 1.19, speaking of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Colossians 2.9, he says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The word became flesh and tabernacled or camped among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Back to John chapter one, he says in his fullness, for from his fullness, excuse me, verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. The grace of God continues to stack up. What's he saying? You go, well, what do you mean grace upon grace? He tells us. Look at this in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What's he saying? He's saying that even the giving of the law was an act of God's grace. I think sometimes as Christians, we look at the Old Testament law and we go, wow, God's kind of being tough, you know? Don't do this and don't do that and don't murder and don't covet. and Man, he seems like, you know, he's kind of being mean. John says, if you're confused about the giving of the law, don't misunderstand. That was an act of grace. Why? Because God's law in the Old Testament, it articulates all kinds of beautiful things to us. I mean, the fact that the creator could speak in a way that the creation can understand at all is an act of grace. That he can communicate in a way that doesn't incinerate us is an act of grace. But what God does in the law is he explains something about who he is. He's declaring in his law things about his character. He's also declaring things in his law about his creative intent, that he created us for a purpose, that he created us for good things and not for evil, that he created us for his glory, to know him and have a relationship with him, not to live a life of selfishness. So in the Old Testament law, God is being incredibly gracious. He's telling us something about who he is. He's telling us something about why he created. He's telling us something about who he is and who we are. And now... In, the Mo- in Moses, we were given. I want you to see, if you're underlining again, in verse uh, 17, underline the word given, and then just a little bit further down, underline the word came. It's a cool distinction. He says, in the fullness of Christ, we've all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's never gonna stop this grace of God. For instance, he says, Moses was given the law. That's an act of grace. God gave Moses the law. We read about it, or you can read about it in Exodus 34. That God gave Moses the law. And that's cool. That's an incredible act of grace that God gave Moses the law. But you know what's cool than God giving the law? Grace and truth coming to us. God doesn't give us grace and truth in Jesus. Jesus is grace and truth among us. We weren't given those things. He came to us. 
All throughout this text, what have we seen? Again and again, John is trying to help us understand the initiative of God, that God sent John the Baptist, that God is the light and life of men, that he comes to his own creation and even to his own people and they don't receive him, and yet, despite being rejected, he does give the right to become children of God to those who will receive him. Not of their own will or their own nature or even their own intention, but because of his will. What do we see? That God wants us to know him. He says, we've all received grace upon grace. Jesus comes in in grace and in truth. And he is that among us. When we look at Jesus, we understand grace and truth. The best way to sort of understand this, and I'm almost done this morning if you're nervous about the clock. When we, when we, uh, when you go to a gym, right? When you go to a gym, you go to a gym and you, and you hire a trainer, right? I've talked about this before. I'm not gonna do that. But if you were gonna do it, uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want a trainer that's just full of grace, right? You don't want a trainer who goes, hey, I don't even know why you're at this gym. This all looks good to me, bro. You look great, man. What'd you eat this week? Just Twinkies? Way to go, right? That's gracious and kind, right? Undeserved, unearned favor. But you don't want a trainer that's just full of grace. You also want a trainer that's full of truth. You want a trainer that can say, hey, we got some work to do, right? You want a trainer who looks like he knows what he's talking about. I mean, preferably you want to get a trainer with no neck, right? That's what I usually go for, right? A trainer who by his very presence is a declaration of truth. And is that intimidating? Is that sometimes something that causes you a little bit of shame when you compare yourself to the truth of who the trainer is? Yeah, it is. But it's also a catalyst and a motivator. Jesus comes to the earth, the word made flesh, and tabernacles among us, and he lives a perfect life. He lives a life of truth, the truth of God, who we as created beings were meant to be. He demonstrates that. And when we look at Jesus, we don't recognize him because he doesn't look like us. The reason he doesn't look like us is he's full of grace and truth. And so we look at his truth and we go, well, I don't live like that. I'm not kind like that. I'm not generous like that. I'm not forgiving like that. I'm not sacrificial like that. And so we have a tendency then to want to reject him. We like anti-heroes, don't we? We like our heroes to have a little bit of brokenness. We like them to have their flaws because that makes them feel more human to us. Listen, Jesus was fully human and he was perfect in every way. And if that makes you feel a, a little bit Shamed in your comparison to him? Good. That should be a catalyst. Not that he would ever want to shame us, but that in looking at the perfection of Christ, we would go, I have a long way to go. And the great news is he's not just truth. He's also grace. Undeserved favor and kindness. So when we look at Jesus and we go, oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and unclean hands. I don't deserve to be in your presence. You're so glorious. You're full of grace and truth. He goes, I love you, and I know you, and I know you're broken, and I know you don't have it all together. That's what I came. That's what I'm doing here. And if you will receive me, no matter who you are or where you've been, no matter if you've rejected me in the past, no matter if you didn't recognize me, if you will believe on my name, I will give you the right to become children of God, not because of something you did, but because of who I am. It says in this last verse of our study this morning, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, right? Even Moses didn't get to see him. Moses saw the back of his hand, right? And that almost burned him up. No one has ever seen God. But God, only God, who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. What's John the writer saying? Moses didn't get to see God, but I have. 
I've seen him, and his name is Jesus, full of grace and truth, and out of his fullness we have received grace upon grace upon grace. And so we don't have to be intimidated or beat up by his truth. We can revel in his truth because he is, a, he is full of grace and truth. He wants us, my friends, to know him. Do you know him today? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? In a room like this, there are all kinds of different people, and I, I don't have the ability to speak to each one of you individually. Only God can do that. But I would guess that there may be some of you in the room this morning who've heard stories about Jesus, who maybe even understand some theological principles about Jesus, but you have not received him. But you've never trusted in him to rescue you from sin and death, to give you the right to become a child of God. And if you're here this morning, there is no reason to wait. There is no reason to put it off. He is the fullness of God in a body. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The truth of the matter that he declares is that we are imperfect. And when we look at Jesus, we see our our imperfection. We see our brokenness. We see our sin. We see the way it separates us from God. And yet he has come in the flesh and dwelt among us. He came. He gave. He became so that we would become He gave so that we would receive. He shined his light that we would live. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, I invite you right in this moment, right where you sit, to do that. To cry out to God from the quietness of your own heart and say, will you save me from sin and death? I believe in you. I'm grateful that you came. And I'm trusting in you to rescue me. And we believe that when you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. There are others of you in this place who've been following Jesus for a long time. And just like me, I have to ask myself the question, would I know him? I'd know him if he wore the beard and the blue sash. I'd recognize him right away. But would I know him by his character because he looks like me? Or would he feel foreign to me because I'm so not like him? God, I pray that you would give us as a church the power to replicate you, that from your fullness we would put on display grace after grace after grace, that we would be full of grace and truth, that we would be a light, not the light, not the true light, but sent by you that we would be a lamp through which your light can shine, that all men would believe in you. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.